Amen. Good morning, everybody. Really glad to see you this morning. I hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 is, is where we are today. Last week we saw a word to the husbands. And while that seemed like a bit of a shift of gears, we really didn't walk away at all from those three principles we have been talking about that were laid out way back in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. I'll remind you once again that we have stated them this way. Number one, beloved, this place is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are strangers and aliens here in this world, in this land. We are strangers and aliens. This is not our home. Number two, beloved, there is a war within. The flesh and the spirit are at odds within us all the time. And number three, beloved, there is a world to win. Our verbal witness, our proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ must be undergirded by Christian living. That's how we win the world, by the proclamation of the gospel that is undergirded by Christian living. I want you to know that at our house on Monday or Tuesday each week, Laura reviews the sermon with the kids at breakfast, at the breakfast table. She goes over her notes, which are fantastic always, and she reviews the sermon with the kids, which is sometimes a great thing. Like, I'm encouraged by it sometimes. The kids are picking it up. And then there are other times where I think, oh, I was a, I was a total failure last, last weekend. Uh, but I want you to know that, that as we've been talking about those three points that I think are still on the screen behind me, as we've been talking about those now for over a month, uh, I want you to know that last week, Asher was able to articulate all three of those things. Um, like, like he, even he, as our youngest, has picked up those three principles and is seeing those three principles applied in various ways to various groups of people, right, in various settings. And so um, I don't mean to bore you by saying this over and over again, but I, I mean to adopt a biblical principle where important things are repeated for emphasis sake. Important things are repeated for emphasis sake so that you will be able to walk away with those things firmly in your mind. Um, but the, the real desire is not, not that they'll just be stuck here, uh, but they will implant firmly in your heart and, and, and change the way you live. Um, so... We're not going to move away from those things even this week as we wrap up this part of the text. Um, but last week there were two calls to action, specifically to husbands. Uh, we are called to live with our wives in knowledge, with, with certain knowledge and understanding of our wives. And secondly, we are called to honor them. We are called to honor our wives. And not only did Peter give us two calls to action, he also gave us two insights into our wives that will help us to do that. One thing he told us about our wives is that they are the weaker vessel, since they are women. Remember, we talked about how that word was a, a reference to their femininity. Um, and the second thing is, they are fellow heirs with us in the grace of life. And so Peter said, as we seek to understand and honor, we need to know about their differences. We need to know about our differences in physical weakerness, particularly when it comes to our wives. But we also need to know, we also need to understand our sameness in spiritual standing. And in understanding that, we can honor them appropriately. So we know and honor our wives in our differences and in our sameness. And then at the end of the text, Peter said, do this so that your prayers will not be hindered, so that your prayers will not be blocked. And so, fellas, I hope that you have thought about that this week. I hope that you have sought ways to uh, apply those principles to your life, with your wife in particular, uh, so that your prayers are not hindered, so that your walk with Jesus is, is in a good place. Over the last month or so, what we have seen in the text are specific words of direction to specific sets of people. And while each time there have been principles, general principles that apply to all of our lives, 
Each week we've had to do a little bit of work to get there if we are not specifically in the set of people being addressed. Well, good news is this week the word is for all of us. It's addressed to all of us. Well, at least it's addressed to all of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's addressed to all of us who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is addressed to all of us who have repented of our sins and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's addressed to all of us who are repenting of our sins and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And friend, I hope that is you. I hope that is you. I hope you don't find yourself today on the outside. Hopeless, helpless, lost. But if you do find yourself there today, I've got good news for you. All of us were once there. But God rescued us. He called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Caused us to be born again to a living hope. And he can do the same for you. He can do the same for you. Cry out to him. Trust in him. Ask him to save you, and he will. And that may be the main thing that you need to hear today. That may be the reason you are here today. And so right off the bat, before we even get into the sermon, I beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God today. Repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today. That's your only hope. That's your only hope for eternity. Well, like I said, this week's text is a general word to all of us who are the people of God. And these verses are going to serve as a conclusion to the practical section about submission that we've been in for well over a month now. And also, it will serve as a transition to a section about suffering and endurance that will occupy our time for at least a few weeks, right? At least a few weeks ahead, uh, that's what we're going to be talking about. So today is transitional. It's going to wrap up one thing, and it's going to introduce another, and it's super important. So let's read it together in 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. This is God's word. It says, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days, good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, right off the bat today, we want to pray for those among us who are in the darkness who are on the outside, who are lost and without hope. We ask that by your spirit, in a way that only you can, that you would cause them to feel that lostness today, to know the reality of your holiness and their sinfulness and the wrath that they currently stand under. We pray that you, in a way that only you can, would bring conviction and a sense of desperation. By grace, teach their hearts to fear. And by grace, relieve those fears as you open their eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ who died in their place, who took their sin, who died their death and rose in victory. Oh, Father, grant them faith to trust in Christ. Grant them repentance to turn away from sin. And we ask that you would save them for your own namesake. Give them hope and peace and restoration 
forgive them and adopt them as your own children and make them our brothers and sisters in the process. Help us to walk alongside them in love. For us as your people, today we ask for insight to understand this text. We ask for humility to receive it. And we ask for faithfulness to obey it. This is not easy. What you are calling us today is not easy. And it does not come naturally to us. But we trust that what you command, you will also empower. And so for the sake of your own name, we ask that you would do it. Help us in Jesus' name. All right, so if you look at the beginning of verse 8, New American Standard introduces this with to sum up. And some of your translations render the word that is there as finally or lastly. And they're not wrong in doing that. They're not wrong in saying finally or lastly here. And Pastor Dylan, when we talked about this this week, pointed out a bit of comedy here. We see that Peter is total preacher in this moment. He says finally, and then he has two more chapters to go. Right? We're, we're right at halfway through this letter, and he says, finally. You see, friends, this false finish that preachers do all the time is not a new trick. It's not a new trick that, that the preacher would say, in conclusion, and then preach for 25 more minutes. It's literally the oldest trick in the book. So what we see in the text today is not the end. It's not the end of the letter, at least. But it is the end of this part of the letter. So lastly, it is lastly, is a specific reference to this section of Peter's argument. Like I said earlier, this text is transitional. It's going to wrap up the one thing, lastly, and it's going to move us into another idea that he will spend a great deal of time on. We are, we are nowhere close to the end of our study of 1 Peter. I didn't want to mislead you today. Notice also he says, to sum up all of you. And I talked about this also earlier, but let's remember that this letter was written by Peter to believers. Is written to those who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Look back at chapter 1, verse 1. After identifying himself as the author, he says, To those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. He goes on and says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I want you to remember as he says, all of you, all of us, He's talking about those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the audience to whom he writes this letter. And if you zoom out a little bit here in this section that we've been studying for the last month or so, you'll see that Peter started out very generally, talking to the church as a whole, and then he got super specific. And now what he's going to do is zoom back out and speak more generally as he wraps up this section. So generally, back in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, and the first part of verse 13, he said this, Speaking to everyone, beloved, right? Those are the believers, beloved. I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That was, that was very general, 
right? That was applying to all of the believers in the church that are scattered around this whole region of Asia Minor. But then you know that right after that, at the end of verse 13, he picked up on specific things. He spoke to citizens. He spoke then to slaves. He spoke after that to wives. And then he spoke after that to husbands. And even when he's talking to wives, he's talking specifically to wives who have unbelieving husbands. Like they are a very specific set of people that are being addressed in that middle section. And now here he zooms back out and speaks generally to all of us, all of you. He speaks to us generally. So what I want to say is if you've had a hard time over the last few weeks, as we've talked about these specific applications and you've thought, this is not for me. This is not for me. I'm not not a wife. I'm not a husband. I'm not a slave. I'm not an employee. None of this applies to me. If you've thought that over the last few weeks and you've kind of checked out, I would encourage you today to check back in. In fact, I would encourage you to check back in over the last few weeks. Like, that was for you as well. That was for all of us as well, those general principles. And I admit we have to do a little bit of work to apply them to our specific context. But all of those specific applications had general principles that apply to you. So check back in today for today. And check back in today for what has happened over the last few weeks. And go back and listen to those again. You can always find those on fbcharrisburg.com. You can find them on Facebook. You can even like subscribe to a podcast that is the sermon on, on Apple Podcasts for every Sunday. Like by lunchtime, it's up there. And you can subscribe and listen to that. Go back and review it. Because I'm telling you, I, I really feel like I could observe some of you just checked out and said, this is not for me. This is for the other people in the room today. I'm going to check out. This is for all of us. All of it's for all of us all the time. And this week is definitely for all of us. Look what he says. He says, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. So here is the call to action today, one of them. One of the calls to action today is this list of five adjectives that should mark our lives as the people of God. As the chosen exiles who are scattered all over the world, as the chosen exiles, this is what our life should look like. And a lot of ink has been spilt in the discussion of these descriptions. And I'll tell you, it's fascinating reading. What I want to do today is try to boil it down the best I can and even give you a visual that might be helpful as we think about these five adjectives. Look at it on the screen. I hope they came through in color. Nope, that's okay. We're going to have to do a little bit of work on this. Sorry, I should have given clearer instruction about that. So these five adjectives are linked together in a pretty interesting way. The first one that's listed in New American Standard Translation, at least, is harmonious. And that word means, quite literally, to have the same mind. To have the same mind. That's what we are called to. We're called to unity of mind. Sympathetic means to feel with. It means to feel alongside of someone. To have the same feeling as someone. Uh, Brotherly, um, the way New American Standard translates that, is is the word, it's, it's the word Philadelphia, Uh, in the Greek, and is this family affection that is really based on blood, which I think is super helpful. Um, We are are united together as family by blood. We, We are blood family. It's the blood of Jesus that makes us family, right? And there's a certain affection for one another that comes in that family connection. And then the next one that is listed is kind hearted. That word literally means to feel for. It's it's the word that we get our our English word for spleen. 
um, which is like this, this part of your guts that is deep down inside of you. Uh, our word for spleen comes from this word. It means to have this like deep-seated gut-level affection or feeling for one another. So sympathetic is about feeling for and kind-hearted is about, I mean, sympathetic is feeling with and kind-hearted is feeling for. And the New American Standard, and I'm not sure why they do this, uh, translates the next one as humble in spirit. Well, literally it is humble in mind or low in mind, in fact. Low in mind. And so, uh, oh, yes, you did it. Can you also put the tabs in? Because that's helpful too. So what we see here, even just in the colors, is that the first adjective and the last adjective are very similar. It means to have the same mind and a humble mind. And one preacher said those two are obviously linked together because if we're going to have unity, that requires humility, right? Unity requires humility because if we are all puffed up, if we are large in our own minds, if we think we are really something, we are never going to get along with one another. But when we put ourselves last, when we put ourselves least, as the Apostle Paul is constantly doing as he identifies himself, as we do that, as the Lord Jesus did when he girded himself up like a slave and washed the disciples' feet, if we are humble, we will also find ground for unity. All right? So those two things, basically because of their, their link with the word mind, the, the, the Greek word for mind is in both of those words. So we have the same mind, which is a humble mind, and that brings us together. And then if you look, the second and the third are also the same because they're about feelings. Remember I told you that the, the third one is about this like gut level, spleen level affection that we have for one another. And sympathetic means to, means to feel with people. So we're talking here about our emotions. We're talking about our esteem for one another, that we are warm and we are tender and we are kind and we feel along with each other. This is what we see on display in the life of the church all the time, especially that sympathy, where we see someone who's having a great day. Like we sing about this a minute. The sun's shining down on me and the world's all as it should be. Blessed be your name. Some of you had a week like that. Some of you really had a week like that, where it was like, when? Like this was a really good week. Everything went my way this week. And we say with you, Blessed be the name of the Lord in the midst of that. And some of you, as Laura said, had a whole different kind of week. The road was marked with suffering. And there was pain in the offering. And we join with you in that. And we say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Because he gives and he takes away. And we say, blessed be your name in the midst of it all. And we say that together. And that's hard to do sometimes. It's hard to feel along with people sometimes. It's hard, especially if you've had a really hard week and the person sitting next to you has had a really good week. I heard a preacher talking about this the other day in, in his own church, and he was talking about a family, a family who was announcing after years of, of struggling um, to conceive a child, in the church they were announcing that they had finally conceived and that she was pregnant, and, and uh, there was much rejoicing. There was another family in the church who was walking right alongside them in their struggles with infertility, having their own struggles with infertility. And they had not conceived. And so as the church was rejoicing with this family who had finally been given the desires of their heart and they were rightly rejoicing, that stung this other family who was not experiencing the same thing. And this brother was talking about he knew his church was in a healthy place when it was that family 
that was the first to speak up and praise God in prayer for this family and their conception. He was like, then I knew, then I knew the Lord was at work in my church. When the family who was suffering the most in that exact same situation were the very first ones to raise a praise to the Lord for this other family. Oh, brothers and sisters, let's do that here at First Baptist. Let's feel with each other and let's feel for each other. Like deep down, let's have that kind of family love for one another. And, and all of this, so we've got same mind, humble mind. We've got feeling with and feeling for. And all of it is, is hovering around this middle one that is brotherly love or family affection. Like that seems to be the main point. When there is structure like this in the Bible, it's called, it's called chiasm, where you've got A, B, C, B, A. Well, when we see that, the thing that is, that is being drawn attention to is whatever's in the middle of it. Like this is, it's all over the place in scripture. We see it all the time. Biblical authors use this. And the thing that is being emphasized is that one in the middle. And so the church here is being called to family affection. We are being called to live together as brothers and sisters who've been adopted into the family of God by the gospel, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. And if we're going to live with that family affection, we're going to need to have deep feelings for each other, and we're going to need to feel alongside each other, and we're going to have to be united in our thinking, right? Especially about main things, we're going to be united in our thinking, and that's going to require humility, and all of this is building toward brotherly love. I believe that this first verse that we're looking at is what our relationships with one another within the church should look like. This is what family life is all about. But when I look at those things, I realize that they do not come naturally to us. Like that list is not natural. It's not fleshly, right? R.C. Sproul said, I think it's safe to say that there are not two people in the church who would agree on everything. You agree with him? I think it's safe to say that there are not two people, two people in the church that agree on everything. And I find it Increasingly difficult to find two people in the church who agree on anything, right? We just, we just naturally are inclined to be antagonistic toward people. And we live in a culture that, oh, is just fueling that fire all the time, right? Our culture wants us to be divided all the time. And yet we are called here to one mind, which is a humble mind. These are not the lusts of the flesh, as we talked about making war against our souls. What we see here are otherworldly fruit of the Spirit that should mark the life of Christians. So it would be wise as we look at those adjectives to ask ourselves if these are characteristics of us. And I'm talking about us as individual followers of Jesus. The question is, is this me? Is this me? And then we should ask ourselves, if this is a right description, if these are characteristics of us as a local church, as the body of Christ, as First Baptist Church Harrisburg, the question is, is this us? And the answer is no, not as it should be. But I hope the answer is better than it was yesterday. We want to be growing in our Christ-likeness. We must acknowledge as we consider these things that there is a difference between working this up, like conjuring it up from within us, rather than it flowing out of us by, by virtue of the new birth we have been given. 
I am not asking you to put on some false, fake hypocrisy within these walls. That is not what we're shooting for as a family here at First Baptist Church is this kind of glossy, fake, I'm doing good and I love you and you love me and we'll rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And it's all lies. It's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about what is flowing out of us because our hearts have been transformed. We must acknowledge that there's a difference between working this up in the flesh and it flowing out of us by the Spirit. We also must acknowledge that this is about growth, not arrival. You guys give me a hard time sometimes about this business of trajectory, but that's the essence of the Christian walk. We are born anew. We are called out of darkness into marvelous light. We are caused to be born again, and that starts a journey of growth in Christ-likeness that should last our entire lives. We should be more and more conformed to the image of Christ with each passing day. And so this in me, this in us as a body is about trajectory. We need to be asking, how can I grow in these areas? How can I be more united in mind and humble in mind? How can I be more sympathetic and tender-hearted toward you? How can I live out a clearer brotherly love with you more and more each day? How can I grow in these areas is what we're looking for. And we can use Peter's life as an example. I mean, of all people in the world to promote humility as a virtue, Peter, really, does he have any grounds? Does he have any grounds to call people toward humility? Yeah, he does. Yeah, he does. Because he grew in humility as he walked with Jesus, right? I mean, we see Peter in these early days standing up and rebuking the Lord Jesus. Don't talk about that. You can't can't go to the cross and die. He rebukes Jesus. We see him in those early, early days what seems to be full of pride. And in his last day, legend says that he was condemned to be crucified. And he asked to be crucified upside down because he considered himself unworthy to die in the very same way as his master died. I'd say here's a guy that grew in humility as he walked with Jesus. Let that be the trajectory of our lives as well. The question is not, have you arrived at the perfection of brotherly love? Have you arrived at the perfection of humility? That will only happen when you go to glory. The question is, are you growing? Are you growing in humility? Are you growing in kindness? Are you growing in brotherly love and tenderheartedness? That's what we're looking for here. Look at verse 9. It says, Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So if those five adjectives that we were talking about describe our relationship with each other primarily, they're about our relationship with the body of Christ primarily, this directive in verse 9 seems to be about our relationship with the outside world because it implies hostility that we encounter from the lost world. And that very first phrase should make us think about Peter's words from earlier in the letter about following the example of Jesus, right back in chapter 2, verse 21, when it says, for you have been called for this purpose. Hang on to that. That sounds like the exact same language, right? You've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. That sounds familiar to what we're going to read in a minute. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. That sounds directly the same as what we're talking about here. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So when we read here in chapter 3, 
we immediately think about what Peter was talking about in chapter 2 with the example of Jesus. When we read here in chapter 3, we also think about what Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, which evidently really did take root in Peter's heart. Even though he lives according to a different way for much of his time, it really did take root in his heart because we see the fruit of it later on in his life. Look at Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 38. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. He goes on and says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. As we read this directive from Peter, the example of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, I think there's a strong connection with our three general principles we've been talking about for a month. Beloved, this place is not our home. And so they will treat us like outsiders. Those who are at home in this world will treat us as strangers and aliens, not as family, because we're from a different place. Number two, beloved, there is a war within. My flesh wants to lash out at any kind of mistreatment. Yours does too. Any slight, any even perceived slight, your flesh wants to lash out in retaliation, right? Your flesh the last thing it wants to do is give a blessing. When you're slighted, the last thing your flesh wants to do is give a blessing. There's a war within. And beloved, there is a world to win. If we live the way that Peter is calling us to, the way that Jesus showed us, the way that Jesus called us to, if we live this way, we will show the world the character of Jesus, which will support the message that we are preaching to them about Jesus. And I wonder how often our tendency to fight with the world, to fight like the world, has taken the legs out from under our preaching completely. Like we've been telling them about a gospel of grace. We've been telling them about forgiveness of sins. We've been telling them about a new heart and a new life and a new hope. And then they insult us and we give it right back. They revile us and we revile them right in turn. They pour out evil, and we give them evil right back. We fight with them, and we fight in just the same ways they fight. All the while we're telling them we're totally different. All the while we're telling them they too can be different, and we're acting just like them. I wonder how often our tendency to fight has taken the legs out from under our preaching completely. A Puritan named Thomas Brooks once said, To render good for evil is divine. To render good for evil is divine. That's godlike. To render good for good, that's human. That's manlike. Jesus even said in the text we just read, even the Gentiles and the tax collectors do that. Good for good, it's nothing special. All kinds of men do that. 
He goes on and says, to render evil for evil is brutish. That's beast-like. Evil for evil is the way that animals operate. But to render evil for good is devilish. That's Satan-like. Oh, friends, we want to live like the Lord Jesus Christ, who was God, right? Who, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but rather blessed. He said, Father, forgive them. As they were crucifying him, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. When he was afflicted, he blessed. This is a tall order the Lord is calling us to here, right? It's a tall order even just with our language, even just with our mouths, because our mouths are hard to tame, right? Our tongues are hard to tame. James 3 speaks about the power that is in our mouths and the words that fly out of them and how much damage we can do with careless words and how much good we can do with careful words. James in chapter 3 says, For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now if we put bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our lives and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father. And with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. So I'll give a little plug here for Pastor Dillon's New Life University class. Any of you struggling with your language? Especially when you get language that is evil toward you? Especially when you get insult and reviling coming toward you? Any of you struggling with just giving it right back out of your mouth? Any of you really good at just giving right back a blessing? Like with your mouth giving a blessing to those who revile you. Struggling with this? Want to know? Learn how to bless people better. 5 p.m. tonight, down by door number five. Pastor Dylan's going to teach you how to watch your mouth. Shut your mouth. Tame the tongue, right? This is what, this is what we're talking about here. Right? You, don't, you don't give evil for evil. When you're reviled, you don't revile in return. If you're going to follow Jesus, what do you do? You give a blessing instead. You give a blessing instead. Karen Job says, if it is difficult enough simply to refrain from retaliation, it may seem superhuman to return blessing for evil and insult. However, this is the path for the Christian who wishes to follow the Lord's footsteps because to this you have been called. Superhuman. Superhuman. And that's what you are because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. If you're a believer in Jesus, you are superhuman because the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. And he will empower you to obey this as you pursue it. Karen Jobs brings up one of the most debated points in this whole passage, the calling. The text says, for you were called for this very purpose. And there's this debate about, does this calling relate to our Christ-like response to suffering and our obedience? 
or does this calling relate to the inheritance that we will receive? New American Standard seems to translate in a way that leans toward this, that the calling is to the inheritance that we will receive. Now, like most debates when it comes to the Bible, people dig in on one side or the other. But it may be that Peter intends both of these things and sees these two realities as connected as flip sides of the same coin. Does this calling relate to our Christ-like response to suffering and our obedience? Surely it does. We saw almost identical language back in chapter 2, verse 21. Read it again. You have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Are we called to follow Jesus in that kind of life? Absolutely we are. That's part of the calling that we have received. Does this calling relate to the inheritance that we will receive in the end? Surely. As we see in chapter 1 and also in chapter 5 of 1 Peter. In chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation that is to be revealed in the last time. Are we called to the inheritance? Yeah, we were born again unto the inheritance. That is part of our calling, the inheritance that we will receive in eternity. He speaks about it clearly in chapter 5, verse 10, when he says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to what? To his eternal glory. He has called you to follow Jesus in the path of suffering, and he has called you to his eternal glory he himself will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So both of these are threads that have been weaving through this entire letter. And I think it's a mistake to argue for one to the exclusion of the other. Maybe, maybe the first is emphasized here in this text, but the second is not neglected. So here's the way I'll say it. I'm going to say this a couple of times so that you'll pick it up. The call to suffer with Christ-likeness the call to walk in faithful obedience unto God is the path. It's the path we walk to the inheritance that is also our calling. The call to suffer with Christ-likeness, the call to walk in faithful obedience unto God is the path. That's the narrow way that Jesus talked about. Obedience, perseverance, faithfulness, that's the path that we walk to the inheritance to which we have been called. We are called to walk a path to the inheritance that is our calling. So the promise of the inheritance that is coming keeps us walking the path, right? Knowing that we are headed toward eternal glory. That helps us walk the path of suffering well. That helps us bless when we are reviled. It helps us suffer with patient endurance. The promise of inheritance keeps us walking. And inheritance is about receiving, not earning, right? I'm trying to correct a potential misunderstanding here. When we talk about inheritance, 
that inheritance that keeps us walking is not about earning. You're not going to walk yourself into an inheritance. You're going to walk a certain way because you've been given an inheritance. Even inheritance, the word itself, is about receiving and not earning. Inheritance has everything to do with relationship and not performance, right? So where are we headed? We're headed toward inheritance. And we walk as children of God toward that inheritance. So the inheritance, the promise of the inheritance keeps us walking the path and the path of suffering and obedience, the path that we are walking confirms our union with Christ. The path that we walk confirms our union with Christ whereby we enjoy the inheritance. We have been called not just to glory. We've been called not just to glorification. We have been called also to sanctification. James says it like this. I will show you my faith by my works. I will show you that I have been redeemed by the way that I live. That's what's going on in this text. The call to suffer with Christ-likeness, the call to walk in faithful obedience unto God is the path that we walk to the inheritance to which we have been called. We've been called to the path and we've been called to the glory. And look at verse 10. Peter's now going to use Psalm 34, verses 12 to 14, which is why we read earlier from this psalm. He's going to use that section to ground his argument further in the Old Testament. It says, For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must speak peace and pursue it. Right? Good days, life, love, seems like the inheritance. The one who wants that must walk the path. Must walk in this way. Turn away from evil, do good, keep his, watch his mouth. And then in verse 12 he says, For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So there are six commands here if we want to love life and see good days. If you live this way, you will see good days and love life. And I'm telling you this is not works-based undoing of the gospel, but it is essential evidence of a life that is transformed by God's grace. For without this way of living, there's no proof of conversion. The fruit of your life reveals the root of your life and gives confidence of the eternal reward for your life. Like these things are all connected. And the word must in the text is strong. The obedience of faith is not optional in the life of the believer. This is where I'm driving with all this. I know it's hard to get there. I'm super afraid that many of us in this room and many modern Christians around us want the inheritance and have no desire to walk the path of obedience. We want justification and we want glorification and we want no talk about sanctification in the process. We dismiss sanctification as old-fashioned at best. Legalism at its worst. And yet in the New Testament, consistently, in the New Testament, consistently we see the transformed life. In the New Testament, we consistently see that the obedience of faith is essential, indeed necessary, for final glorification. The New Testament doesn't imagine a person who is justified and glorified, but not sanctified. There's no concept of that in the life of a believer. It's not optional to grow in Christ-likeness. 
John Piper argued that Peter is using this psalm as a bit of carrot and stick motivation for faithful obedience and Christ-like endurance. The carrot is love life, see good days, eyes of the Lord being upon you, the ears of the Lord being attentive to your prayers. Those are all things we want, right? And the stick is that the face of the Lord will be against those who do evil. You want the face of the Lord against you? I don't. I, I see in the scriptures when the Lord sets his face against people, it's bad news for them. I want the eyes of the Lord toward me. I want his ears open to my prayer. That may be connected with what we saw last week, right? What could hinder my prayers to the Lord? Bad relationship with my wife can stand in the way of that. Disobedience to the Lord stands in the way of that. I want his ears open. And part of what that looks like is obedience. Not obedience to produce it, but obedience that flows out of a life that's already been changed. He's right. Piper's right. There's both a promise and a threat in verse 12. Beloved, I want you to remember that by the new birth, you are righteous. And so you've been called to righteousness. So we'll get to these three applications, the same ones we've been making. Number one, this world is not our home. We are strangers and aliens here. We are not like them. And because of that, they were probably not like us. Because we're not like them, they will probably not like us much. But we have this little community within the larger community. We've got this little community of like-minded brothers and sisters, this little family full of brotherly love, tenderheartedness. So don't forget the church. That's what I want to say. Invest in the local church. So this is a plug for my Life University class. Five o'clock in the parlor. I've got no way to connect this to Joe's Life University class. <laughs> My Life University class is talking about the importance of the local church in the life of the believer. We need the church because this world is not our home and the church is a little taste of home. It's like a little, little, little embassy of our home country here in the world. We're on home turf when we're here, even in the midst of the war around us. And there is a war around us. In fact, there's also a war within us. That's number two. There's a big part of me, there's a big part of you that wants revenge. Tit for tat is the way we operate. And there's a certain level of satisfaction that comes with that. But it's short-lived, and you know it causes more harm than good in the long run. So this text is calling us to put that fleshly desire for revenge to death because you have already died to it in Christ. And again, we're talking here about growth and not perfection talking here about growth in this and not perfection. I had a conversation recently about a couple of older brothers who seemed to get better with age. Like as I was observing their lives, they seemed to get better with age. For years, I have joked that I can't wait until I'm an old man so that I can say whatever's on my mind, however I want to say it, and have impunity because I'm an old man. Like I've been looking forward to that. And now I'm learning that I've got to put that to death. I don't want to become harsher as I get older. I want to become gentler. I want to become kind. I want my heart to get tenderer and my words to be more affirming. I want to be sympathetic. That's what we want. More like Jesus. So we've got to fight the flesh. And we've got to feed the spirit. And then finally, there's a world to win. There's a world to win unto Christ. If you win an argument insulting exchanges, fighting the way they fight. If you win, what do you win? If we fight like they fight, we don't win them to Christ. We don't win them to anything. 
But there is a different way. And that way might not look like victory. The way of Christ might not look like victory, but I'm telling you, the cross didn't look like victory either. In the moment, that didn't look like a win. And yet it was the greatest win the world has ever known. So let's win the same way Jesus won. With humility, meekness, sacrifice, blessing. Let's stand together and pray. God, help us. This is not, this is not natural. Our flesh wants nothing to do with the way of Christ. And yet to this we have been called. So we want to walk the road that you've called us to. And we know that we can walk it with faithfulness and confidence because of where it leads, because of the inheritance that is ours. So give us a clear picture of that inheritance, of the joy that is before us so that we will endure, so that we will walk with faith in these days on the earth looking more and more like Jesus every step of the way until that day when you take us home. We are conformed fully and finally, glorified completely because of your grace. God, we do pray for men and women and boys and girls who are lost. I'll rescue them today, Father. Change them. Save them for your own glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.